named for the greatest performer ever on clay, what will it take for Nadal the horse to reach the clay and loam of Churchill Downs' main track on the first Saturday of May? Plus, how good would it be for the sport if there was a way to mandate, track, and enforce the aftercare details of racehorses? There is a way, but like so many good ideas in this country, it originates in Britain. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. And while you're at it, how about adding the at ABR handle to your notes so those Mensa members at America's Best Racing realize that we're out here. Thanks to them for their support. Stop me when you've heard this one before. Trainer Bob Bafford has a classy three-year-old who didn't start at age two and now looks like he could be the next derby winner. Yup, that's what happened two years ago with Justify who went from unraced to Triple Crown winner in 112 days. This year, Baffert's latest unraced two-year-old, who now shows loads of potential on the clay and loam of the main track, is a colt named for one of the greatest competitors of all time on clay, but in a different sport. Nadal is handwritten at the rail. Nadal puts his head in front with an eighth to go. Gets a reminder. Ginobili keeping him company. Four in front of fast enough. A 16th to run. And it's Nadal just in front of Ginobili who's running a giant race. Nadal is doing the work though. And it will be Nadal taking care of business in the San Vicente. Now, hold on a minute. First of all, the San Vicente doesn't offer any points toward qualifying for the Kentucky Derby. Plus, the race is seven-eighths of a mile. The Kentucky Derby is a mile and a quarter. So, Nadal's ascension to immortal status is not exactly a fait accompli. Nevertheless, his win is one of the more eye-opening performances on the Triple Crown Trail so far, and he turned around on short rest just three weeks after his debut win to do it. To talk a little more about Nadal, the horse, we are joined by one of his owners, the Frenchman Arthur Hoyot. Appropriate, since the horse's namesake has won a staggering 12 French Open tennis titles. And Arthur Hoyot joins us here on In the Gate. What do you make of Nadal's two races so far? Well, look, he's, he, obviously, he obviously won very impressively first time out. Uh, that was not the initial plan, but the trainer Bob Baffert explained that very well. He wanted to get foundation into him, and they gave him a really hard race, and the fractionals were very strong, and, you know, he sort of got out of of troubles and for I thought it was a very good second run so we're just looking forward to the next one we'll get to that one a little bit later but you know Nadal is a son of blame who of course won the mile and a quarter Breeders' Cup Classic defeating the great Zenyatta in 2010 yet Nadal has been right up on the lead in his two races so what do you think of that when it comes to trying to stretch him out in distance well his, his pedigree suggests that he should stay further He's quite a laid-back horse, and, and as I said, Bob's quite confident he will stay further. Uh, there, is, there is no sign saying that 
than he should not. So he's got a lot of speed, but but you know, as a trainer, he's not worried that he will stay further. So as long as he's not we're not worried. You can tell by listening that you're much more of a bloodstock consultant, mainly in Australia and Europe, than an owner. So how did you get involved with this horse as one of the owners? Well, no, he was purchased with with Kerry Radcliffe not even a year ago at the Phasic Tip and Gulfstream sale. A diverse group of owners was put together, uh, mostly carries, and I just took a very minor interest. It's a good group of people involved in that horse, and some people have had that, um, like George Walton, who, who has had a lot of luck over the years, and she's very astute owner as well. We was a student at that sale, we thought, and the rest is history. Your father, Eric, the head of the renowned Arcana Bloodstock Sales Company in France, has said that the sport's biggest challenge is to be more customer-focused. Now, you're a younger person in racing, but you've been around the sport your whole life. What does this sport do to fulfill, what must it do to fulfill your father's words? Well, you know, I haven't been walking in France for quite a few years, but obviously I'm very close to the racing industry in France. And and what he means by that is, you know, owners and punters are the backbone of our industry and, and we, we just got to look after those customers so you know whether you're an owner or a punter they are the one they are the the people to look after uh, that's i think what he means and and that's what everyone involved in the business should think of how well does this industry look after its customers well it's not necessarily well placed to speak about it but i spent a bit of time in australia where i think they do a really good job looking after their customers you know we just got to offer them a tailor-made program and they got to feel comfortable being part of the industry. That's amazing. We got to give them confidence and they must have fun and just let them enjoy the rides, whether they're punters, as I said, or uh, owners. Arthur Hoyo, co-owner of Nadal, joins us here on In The Gate. Before working in Europe and Australia, you spent 18 months working at the Hong Kong Jockey Club. The Hong Kong Jockey Club has been pretty progressive as racing jurisdictions go when it comes to beefing up its TV signal, adding other amusements for guests at the track, and a lower takeout rate on bets. So knowing what you know about American racing, what realistically can be done to become more customer-focused? Well, I mean, obviously Hong Kong, it's uh, betting on racehorses now, soccer, but that's the only betting support they get. So... I mean, from a punter's point of view, they just have a very nice product, very tidy and clean product, extremely transparent. So that I think, from a, from the punter's point of view, all the efforts is based on that. From from the ownership point of view, they make owners feel privileged to be owners, to put it in simple words. So they feel they are part of a club, and whether it's hospitality at the race course, they are member of a club before being owners. Owners is just a you know, one of the opportunities you get when you are part of that club and they feel privileged to be part of that club and then be race for the owner. So we just, we have to make them feel privileged. Okay. Of course, that part of the world has been devastated by the coronavirus. Sha Tin Racetrack, which normally would see crowds of 35,000 on a Saturday, as you said, the only betting in town, Restricted access now to just over a thousand people recently, and it'll maybe be 500 for the next few race days. What are you hearing from the people you know over there about this? Well, I mean, look, it's a sad situation for the people concerned, first of all, for the economy. It's probably the least of their problem. 
at the minute. I don't I mean, it's the same in a situation that they were in about 15 years ago when the SARS, uh, the SARS virus uh, hit them. So there is a real, the extremely, you know, scared of a repetition. It looks like it's being repeated. So what I hear is that, you know, it's just, they, it's just going back 15 years and they're all, it's all pretty scary and it's a very sad situation, as I said, for, for the people in all and for the, and for the economy over there. It might affect the worldwide economy i don't you know i'm not too sure about that but racing they they've i mean i'm just i would just hear the sale in australia and, they, and they've been much less action from hong kong owners at the sale so you know it probably reflects what what's going on there Nadal shakes loose at the quarter pole. At the rail, Laneway is coming after him. Jeff and John Stunder on the outside of three Arch Bay Mafia. They're in the final furlong. Nadal a length and a half to Laneway. Exalted starts to pick it up late. They're heading to the 16th pole. Nadal just shown the whip by J.C. Diaz Jr. And he spurts clear. It will be Nadal, handwritten to a comfortable four-length win. As we mentioned, you've been involved in the industry mainly as a bloodstock agent. And you've dipped your toe in the ownership end of it, as you mentioned. How often are you part of ownership groups like the one for Nadal? Uh, it's very rare. It's very rare. And as I say, it's a very minor interest. So it's not, I don't think it's that relevant. Uh, but no, extremely rarely. But how does it feel then to be with a rooting interest in a horse of this caliber? You know, it's a very exciting position to be in and the horse couldn't be in better hands, you know, the, and for everyone connected to the horse, it's, everyone's really enjoying the ride and taking race after race and just unbelievable, really, to be on that derby trail. And it's uh, just probably hard to describe, but no, it's extremely fulfilling. You know, when you name a horse for a living person, that person has to grant permission. So who reached out to Rafa and what was his response? Well, I don't think... You know, Nadal is a common name in Spain, and so Nadal, you know, I mean, it's Rafa Nadal could have been an issue, I guess, but Nadal, as it is, I don't think he's trademarked. So, I mean, obviously that name, you know, Keratif had some luck naming also after athletes in Gronkowski, so that was kind of a, the idea behind the naming of, of that horse, especially after Bob really thought that this horse really needed a strong and impactful name. As um, as you you know, you thought since day one it was quite special. So I mean, I, there was no permission asked from what I could hear. So and we there haven't been any issues since. So I don't think there is an issue that any issues with that. You don't really think Nadal was named after some bricklayer in Barcelona, do you? No, for sure not. For sure not. But I don't think you can claim Nadal as. Uh, and, and look, and and I'm sure. I mean, we haven't. I mean, no one has been in touch with him or. Uh, or yet, and it might happen in the next few weeks. We don't know, but I hope that he will be he will be happy about that. Bob Baffert has indicated that Nadal might next surface in the Rebel Stakes at Oaklawn Park in Arkansas on March 14th, where he might face Three Technique, who was second in the Smarty Jones. And of course, Three Technique allows us to name drop another sporting legend, American Football Hall of Fame coach Bill Parcells, who owns him. And that race may also have Basin for trainer Steve Asmussen. That horse hasn't been seen since winning the hopeful at Saratoga way back on Labor Day weekend. What do you make of this potential spot for Nadal? Well, the first thing, you know, everything is in the hands of, of Bob, who, and as I say, we couldn't be in better hands. 
we're just looking forward to see him stretching up, I guess. See how he will handle the going to turn and going longer. So that will be the main question mark about it. But as I said, the trainer is not worried, so we're not worried about it. And if he repeats, you know, he's got a lot of tactical speed. And if he can stay, you know, we hope he can just step up to the next stage and get points toward the Kentucky Derby. And we certainly wish you the best of luck. Arthur Hoyo, thank you so much for a few minutes here on the Kentucky Derby Trail. Thank you very much, Barry. What if you could easily track a thoroughbred's whereabouts after its racing career is over? What if there was a way to make sure of it? There just might be. We'll explain when we come back. Welcome back to In the Gate. If you follow thoroughbred racing, it won't take you long before you come across grisly stories about the fate of some horses after they finish their racing careers. The Australian broadcasting company, ABC, has a particularly gruesome one which came out last October. In the last 10 years or so, thoroughbred aftercare has become a much more front-burner issue across the industry, but there has never really been a comprehensive way to track the progress of thoroughbreds after they exit the racecourse. That may be changing, though. The Racing Post in London was the first to report that the British Horse Racing Authority is just rolling out a new aftercare tracking program. To get some idea of how this program will work, we welcome in the BHA's Director of Equine Health and Welfare, David Sykes, to fill us in. Now, a couple of years ago, the BHA sent out a survey to horsemen regarding aftercare. What questions did you ask, and exactly to whom did you ask them? So we sent that out to trainers and owners looking at how they handled the transition of horses from racing as they retired into post-racing careers or to breeding and who was in charge and who had responsibility for making those decisions. So that's where the questionnaire went to, and we got 600 and something owners replied to it. And off the top of my head, I think there was 200 and something trainers. I thought you said you asked owners. You asked owners and trainers. Owners and trainers, yes. So what did you learn that you had not already known? Well, what we learned was that the trainers were, in most cases, the person taking the responsibility for making the decision for often the, the owners, often often with consultation, but the trainers were the people who took the responsibility to say, um, we think this horse is suitable for rehoming. We have someone who may be interested in taking it if it's going to go to another leisure industry or something like that. And so those decisions were being made mostly by the trainers. And we didn't realize that beforehand because lots of times we thought owners were being, you know, would be the person to do that. But often owners are one step back. They don't have the contacts or the infrastructure that the trainers do with new people or people to go to for training. And so now the trainers are allowed to be part of the registering and all of that. And your announcement of this process said that it simplifies the registering. How is it simpler? So what we do, we put it online. So it's, it's electronic, and so trainers would be able to now go to their normal training site that they use to do entries and everything else, take a horse that they've got in their yard, put it out of training. Then they once they've put it out of training, they can put a destination and say it's going to another place. It also, that at that point, to help 
us capture more information, if you like, and have better traceability and transparency, we have over here our industry charity, Retraining of Racehorses, which is the charity that's importantly responsible for the retraining, developing the um, demand for these leisure horses with other recreational sectors. And so at that point of time on electronics, we're trying to direct them back through the ROR to pick up and say, in this ROR group, we've got all these acknowledged retrainers, we've got education systems, we have shows, we want to have you involved in this system. But by doing that, we want to keep you registered so that as that horse moves through a career, we've got traceability continuing from that through our charity. And we've not really had a good hold of that whole piece beforehand. David Sykes, the equine director of health and welfare for the British Horse Racing Authority, joins us here on In the Gate. Now, in your statement to the media when you rolled this out, you said that this program will ensure our record keeping is as accurate and up to date as possible. How enforceable is this program? Well, it's not enforceable at this point. It's not enforceable from a regulator's point of view. So as a regulator here in Britain, we don't have regulation over that um, retirement leisure industry. However, the department, the DEFRA, which is the Department of Agriculture here, do have bylaws which says that every horse that's in the country, so whether it's a thoroughbred or a leisure horse, has to be registered with DEFRA within 30 days of taking up ownership. So the government has a central equine database and that therefore is the other place where some of that traceability is held. They will hold all the information away from the racing industry for all horses who are present in the UK. Is there a push, is there a thought about combining your forces and the Department of Agriculture to ensure that racehorses have to be registered and rehomed? So the ones that will be done, so the thing here is that that database, if you like, is updated through Weatherbeast, who is the um, Great Britain stud book holder. And so, again, once we do that electronic shift and move a horse out of training and that whole pass occurs by the trainer, then that passport would be notified to Weatherbeast and updated with the new ownership. And at the same time, 24 hours later, that would be updated automatically into the database for the DEFRA database so that the central database has also got the same information. So ideally, we would have the information sitting in a BHA database from Weatherby's, but also the government would have that sitting in their central database at the same time. Now, this may be getting a bit too granular, but what defines what horses have to be registered? Is it a horse that is trained in Great Britain, a horse that has run a certain number of times in the UK, or some other criteria? As in, you mean through the government registration? Right. Like, in other words, if I'm an American and I own a horse who runs in Britain and is trained in Britain, but I am not myself from the UK, does that still fall under your purview? It does. It does. While that horse remains in the UK we would look at it as the industry here has responsibility to it. So if you decided to then retire that horse here and had your trainer send it to a retraining home or to a new ownership, then we would be looking at that step out, recording that information and saying that horse has moved from your ownership to the new ownership. Here's the new ownership. Can we put that new ownership and put it in contact with ROR? 
And then can we maintain traceability of that horse over a number of years afterwards? So you're talking about whether the new owner, the one who will own the horse in its retirement, is based in the UK, not necessarily whether the owner of the horse while he's or she is racing is in the UK. No, because once you're, if that horse is racing in our database, we've got complete control of it because we have all that race day ownership details. It's that step as it's retired and leaving racing and going on to another career that we want to capture and have better traceability of. One thing you, I imagine, hope to avoid with this program is when a recently retired horse is sold and then the new owner decides to race the horse again. And that situation almost happened here in the States this year with a stakes winner named Green Grotto. The new connections felt the horse flourished when he was put under tack again, and they had intentions of bringing him back to the races until a social media uproar scuttled their plans. Now, in your program, will this sort of situation be adjudicated case by case, or is it a hard and fast rule that racehorses cannot come back to the track after they've been retired? So as you retire that racehorse, or the trainer retires that racehorse for you, you can then actually sign up at that point to a non-racing agreement where you decide that that horse is permanently retired and cannot race again. Okay, so we make it a step right there where we're nominating that horse can no longer compete and return to a racing jurisdiction because unless the owner, the original owner, reviews that and makes a declaration that says he takes that decision away. So at that point of time, if you want to retire your horse and say we don't want it to race ever again, you fill that out on the uh, site, and that goes straight back to Weatherby's, and we have that horse declared that it cannot race again. What pushback or skepticism have you faced in rolling this out? Not really very many. Look, the industry here is very, very keen to embrace both transparency and traceability, and this is one of the sectors that we think needs to be better encompassed than what we've got. We've had some good ways of trying to identify horses as they've left training but the problem is we've not had a really great system to be able to capture a hundred percent of them as they've left because of you know the way with it's been set up so we've made it much simpler online so the trainers would go online and do that automatically and then as i said by involving ror as our retraining charity and directing people through there We want to keep them, if you like, within that retirement community and maintain traceability through that whole process. You inevitably have seen some of the more grisly stories of what can happen to horses after they've left the track. And so you know what some of these more nefarious owners are, what what their mindsets are. How is this program designed to guard against that? Okay, so ideally what you'd think is, If you are able to maintain traceability for horses for a few steps post, so if you had a horse that retired and went to an owner and then you had some indication that was going to, what we call, become vulnerable because it's not being looked after properly or something else is going wrong. If you can recognize that process and make an intervention and if that's what would happen from traceability, that's what would occur. But again, what we've set up here is ROR have set up and we have... Uh, not necessarily what we call inspectors, but ROR associated accredited people who would keep an eye on those retraining centres to see where those horses go to. They also they have we have a recovery vulnerability part where if we have uh, retired racehorses that are then 
declared as vulnerable through uh, either RSPCA or whatever else, there is funding available to take those horses, put them back into a rehoming place, reassess them, see if they can be retrained and rehabilitated back to good health. So we have a capture system in ROR already. It's been in place for the last 20 years. It's worked very, very well. And that would continue and we want to sort of embrace that even further we can. So we make sure that we don't have or we have a minimal number of vulnerable horses. And again, what we're looking for here is the most appropriate homing outcomes for those retired horses. Well, we were talking about how there might be a cooperative program between the BHA and the Department of Agriculture regarding that. For how long after a horse retires would you consider records to be mandatory in such a system? Uh, That's a very good question. Um, I think what we have, how we answer that is, I I think the, the, the challenge for most jurisdictions is to capture initially in that first step out. If you can say I've captured 100% of those horses stepping out as they've retired, that's your first goal. Once we've gone to the next stage, I'm not sure that for how far down the road we can keep traceability completely because there are data protection laws that says we can't look at addresses and things like that. But again, as I said to you, what we're trying to do here is overcome some of that data protection by saying, if we involve these people who are taking these horses into our ROR ownership, then through ROR, we can maintain the traceability going on. Now, whether that's for five years or 10 years or 20 years after they've retired, who knows? But ideally, from an industry, you want to be able to say, we've captured all the information of that first step out, and we have in place a number of processes that maximizes our ability to oversee these horses in their next career as best we possibly can for as long as we can. A very interesting step in the effort to protect the stars of this industry. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Mr. Sykes. Thank you very much for the call. Our thanks to David Sykes and to Arthur Hoyo. A group of racing enthusiasts I know had come together to watch their three-year-old fillies debut race. These folks had varying levels of involvement in the sport. Some owned other horses. Others were fresh-faced. Here was a chance for the industry to show off its best side, the horses and the social atmosphere. The customer-focused thing to do would include comping their lunch. But customers are not paramount, I fear. I know at least two members of that group declined to go when they realized they would not be treated well. What do you think they're going to tell their friends and family, as if the racing experience isn't tough enough to sell? Beyond the problem of horse safety is the lack of customer focus, which really seems incredible to me. You know I'm not a company shill, but this would never happen if a track was operated by Disney. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. It really helps with our search engine visibility. And remember to let those folks at ABR know that we're out there. Maybe they'll remember that we're one of the originals in the horse racing podcast space. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.